Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, whatever happened to AOC and Cori Bush? You remember that movie, Knock Down the House, uh, that uh, showed those two and two other candidates, and then they miraculously won. And then did they ever get their uh, goals accomplished? Well, if you watch The Young Turks regularly, you might have some answer to that question. But there's a whole new movie about the entire answer to that question. And it's called To the End. And the filmmaker behind both movies, Rachel Lears, joins us now. Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much, Cenk, it's great to be here. Uh, great to have you. All right, so Rachel, I'm gonna show a quick half of a trailer here uh, to give people a sense of what the movie's about. And then we'll come and talk about the politics of it and, and how you made it as well. So let's watch. Fighting for change politically requires faith. We are building an army of young people to stop the climate crisis and create millions of good jobs for our generation. Everyone wants to talk about this dispassionately, but this is the world that I will raise my kids in. The more centrist wing is arguing that they want to maintain the status quo. Ain't nobody gonna keep us down. This is going to be the moonshot of our generation. Moments of crisis crack open the window of possibility. Sometimes I feel like my job is to get my hands dirty. You're not gonna trick us, hell no. <laughs> now is the time to leverage our power. We have tens of thousands of new people joining. We're in the battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. Make them feel like they're gonna lose their seats if they don't support this. As long as there are people that you can poison without consequence, there will always be a loophole that the fossil fuel industry can exploit. All right, uh, well, that uh, looks like a cast of characters you might see on the Young Turks on, on any given week. Uh, so Rachel, uh, for the folks who don't know, uh, tell us real quick, who are the four people you've uh, followed and knocked down the house and how did that lead to this movie? Yeah, so in Knocked on the House, uh, we followed Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush, Amy Valella, and Apologene Swearingen in their insurgent congressional campaigns in 2018. And as all your viewers know, I'm sure uh, that year AOC won her primary and uh, and of course her seat. And uh, in the fall of 2018, when we were in post-production for Knockdown the House, we started having conversations about this film. And that was the fall that the really shocking UN IPCC report came out, stating that um, the world needs to make uh, 
rapid, far-reaching and unprecedented changes to all aspects of society by the year 2030 in order to avoid the most catastrophic effects of the climate crisis. So that really galvanized me to make my next film about climate issues. And of course, right around the same time, AOC and the Sunrise Movement collaborated on it, you know, bringing the Green New Deal to the national consciousness. And that really exploded. And so very quickly, the film coalesced around around another four remarkable women. We continued working with Representative Ocasio-Cortez. We also worked with Alexandra Rojas, the executive director of the Justice Democrats, who we had also known since late 2016 when we started developing Knock Down the House, as well as Varshini Prakash, the ED of Sunrise Movement, and Rihanna Gunn-Wright, who is the director of climate policy at the Roosevelt Institute. So I hope some of your viewers are familiar with all of these folks. I'm sure they have all been on TYT. And those are there at the time, they were some of the main people and organizations working on the Green New Deal. Of course, over the last few years, they built a much larger coalition and you know, really brought in you know, now the vision of the Green New Deal, whether you're gonna call it by that name or not, the general vision of you know, rapid decarbonization paired with equity and justice and you know, making economic and racial justice part of the solution, that's really the the main, it's a it's a centerpiece of the progressive movement in the United States. Yeah, yeah, we we don't call it a Green New Deal anymore. We call it something about inflation. Um, <laughs> not quite sure why, but um, all right. So Rachel, you know, you're involved in politics in in that you have been documenting it now for at least six straight years. Um, but you're you were not directly involved in any campaigns or elections yourself. You're not in that field. You're a director and producer. So when you went to cover AOC and Cory Bush, etc., I'm sure that you know they were hopeful and optimistic. But then it was such a wonderful shock that AOC wound up beating Joe Crowley. It was one of the greatest political upsets in American history, very, very literally, right? I'm curious what you learned from this next movie, where you then saw basically and documented how the sausage is made. Were you also pleasantly surprised at that or horrified and dispirited? Great question. Well, first of all, I did. Um, I was part of Occupy Wall Street actually on the ground in, in the media group. So in that sense, I, I did. Uh, I have had some experience organizing, but you're right. I haven't worked on electoral campaigns in, in that sense, except as as this uh, participant observer in a sense of you know, being being around all these campaigns. So yeah, the, the original idea for this film was really to look at, to, to continue asking as we had asked in Knock Down the House, how do politically impossible things become possible? So continuing to explore that question, but also really to look at what What's it like when a movement has a couple feet inside the doors of the halls of power? Where you know it was this moment for all of the protagonists when we started following them and the Green New Deal was exploding back in early 2019, that there there was they were they had more power than they'd ever had before or than they ever expected to have, but still not enough to completely. You know, achieve all of their goals, set the agenda. So what we watch over the course of the following four years is 
um, not just how the sausage is made, but really uh, how they use the leverage that they have, the disappointments, the um, the role, you know, the emotional roller coaster of of trying to get major climate policy passed. And um, we do end with the Inflation Reduction Act, which of course is. Uh, the first major climate policy in US history. It, it, we try to treat that with a, with a nuanced ending because it's not, you know, it's not the Green New Deal. It's not the full vision. It's not gonna stop the climate crisis or even come close to it. Um, it's very disappointing to environmental justice advocates. And the, the folks in the film all have slightly different reactions to it. So, um, but what we do show is that nothing like that would have been possible without the movement. So we really want to highlight that, you know, this is how individuals can become part of paradigm shifting change is to join a movement in in any of these lanes or in whatever capacity you have um, to become part of that collectively. So for a long time, and as you were actually wrapping up the movie, it appeared that they were not going to pass anything. Uh, so they, there was a ton of hope about Build Back Better and Green New Deal. A big part of it was in Build Back Better. Not all of it, but a big part of it, right? A much bigger part than in, in the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and then uh, those hopes were dashed and, and it looked like uh, until the very last moment that nothing was gonna pass. At that point, how frustrated were you and uh, both at, I mean, I suppose at the project, I'm sure on a personal level, you're very frustrated. That's kind of easier, but but at the process and how hard it is to get change done in American politics, especially. I was extremely frustrated, as as I'm sure you were, and all of us that were that were following this. It was it was deeply disheartening to say the least. We actually premiered to the end at Sundance in January 2022. We were in post production when Joe Manchin did his thing, killed the bill live on Fox News, and we had to rush to incorporate that into our edit. So that was it was just a really dark time. I think the first few months of this year and 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 for much of this year it really looked like this this potentially unique window of the Democrats controlling all three you know the the House the Senate and the presidency that it wasn't going to be possible to pass anything and after all that had happened what an enormous disappointment and missed opportunity that would have been it's just you can't even put it into words so I I felt very I found myself actually really questioning the utility of engaging with electoral politics and institutions. And I think that's a healthy skepticism that we have to keep about the things that are broken about our political system. But I also think that it's important, you know, the system looks a lot less broken when it is doing things. And so now we're very happy to have the ending that we have with something major happening because I think it's really, it helps people see just how important it is to keep engaging. You know, because as Varshini says in the film, our enemy, referring to the fossil fuel industry, is busy putting together their political strategy every second of every day and pouring billions of dollars into making it happen. So we've got to do yeah. what we can. So, um, look, I have to confess that I never thought any of this was going to pass, except the Inflation Reduction Act at the end. It's convenient to say, but they were going to pass some sort of scraps. Uh, so that people weren't furious, but it was always going to be scraps and things that go mainly to corporations. Uh, that's how politics works. But I, I've known that for a long, long time. Um, I am curious, the people involved, the activists, the uh, uh, Congress people, etc. 
Did they think it was gonna pass? Were they surprised to find out that the corruption in government is deeper than they realized? I think everyone saw what was happening. It was kind of a slow decline. And you know, lobbyists were chipping away at the bill through 2021, and it was very clear that it was going to be much reduced from the original vision. Um, I, I don't think that people expected Mansion not to be on board with it because all signs were pointing to the uh, that he was. But um, and and so I think it, it's really been uh, quite a, a journey <laughs> this this past year, sort of in in managing. Uh, the emotions around this, uh, as as it looks like things become possible or or you know shift in and out of the realm of possibility, and I think what we really want to do with the film and what what all of the protagonists are trying to do is is fight the comfort of cynicism because it's it's really easy to to believe that that nothing is possible and then then you don't have to engage with it. You know, I've been there myself. There are lots of good reasons for that, but. Um, for this and all of the other major progressive issues that that affect our lives, you know, it it sounds corny, but you know, we I feel like I don't have the luxury of cynicism. I got a six-year-old kid. I have to believe that another world is possible, and and we can build yeah. it. So, I mean, good news. They answer somewhere in the middle. So exactly. I'm. Uh, I'm the most optimistic man in the world. So I would never entertain cynicism. At the same time. Um, yeah, it was like we're lucky to get scraps. Uh, I think that the one of the reasons I want to watch uh, the movie, Rachel, is because I want to see what life inside the bubble is. Because outside the bubble, honestly, we knew it wasn't going to pass, and that's not coming from cynicism. It's coming from the acknowledgement that the system is systemically corrupt, and the fact that uh, that people don't recognize that is so so frustrating to us outsiders. So that doesn't mean you can't change it. It just means that you have to start with money in politics. Otherwise, you're going to lose on every other issue. Absolutely, I agree completely, and and that's very much the um, I think a perspective that we're trying to give voice to in the film. You know, it's not about naive optimism; it's about militant optimism and belief in the possibility that transformative change uh, is is possible. Uh, not in the sense that the political system is going to function perfectly, but that we have to engage with it to some degree, as long as we have it, laying the groundwork for whatever comes next. You know, there may there could be big changes to our political system one day, and maybe we'll have a different ground to play on. But for now, this is the system we've got, and what we show in the film is this really it's an interesting coordinated inside-outside organizing strategy where you know some people are working. You know, you've got Ocasio Cortez inside government and the Sunrise Movement outside of it. As well as Rihanna Gunwright trying to get the ideas from the outside to the inside, and Justice Democrats trying to get people from the outside to the inside. So, in those strategies, there is room to move the system as far as it can go, which isn't as far as we'd like, but it's an important fight to fight and uh, and I think it's really uh, it, it's really incredible to watch these people and their determination as well as you know a clear-eyed observance of the obstacles, particularly money in politics, which is you know absolutely yeah. agree that is the the obstacle. Yeah, that is the one and, and major obstacle. If we get past that, you can get a lot of goals. Um, so Rachel, uh, last thing is where can uh, people see the movie? 
Yeah, it's opening in 120 theaters on Friday across the country. You can go to our website to the endfilm.com to see a listing of theaters and links to buy tickets. Please come out and support. This is an independent release with Roadside Attractions, great indie distributor. And we'd love to see people in theaters just to share it collectively and support local theaters as well. So hope people come out this weekend. Plus, you get the movie popcorn. It's, it's hard <laughs> exactly. to argue with that. All right, Rachel Lear's The Movies to the End. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jake. Appreciate it too. All right, Rob Maggie's the reporter for The Intercept. He won a Mirror Award in 2022 for how he covered the right wing media misleading his viewers about Black Lives Matter. And to that, of course, I would say, of course. But on the other hand, you have to show it, you have to show with evidence. How they do that, and that's what Rob does. So, Rob, uh, welcome back. Uh, thanks very much, Shane. All right. So this time around, you wrote about left-wing voices are silenced on Twitter as far-right trolls advise Elon Musk. So first, let's start with the right-wing trolls. I mean, so Elon Musk is a bit of a mystery, as of course everybody knows. He seems smart sometimes, and then other times he seems challenged. Um, and so, uh, and. And what seems particularly curious, other than him overpaying by tens of billions of dollars for properties right in front of our nose, is who he's taking advice from. Because every once in a while it'll pop up, and I'm like, wait, did he? Is he really listening to those guys? So who is he listening? Well, I mean, this is a strange thing. We we do get to see some of this play out in public because he's actually responding on Twitter to some of the most extreme far right. Uh, I think trolls is a fair description. They're people who use the platform to attack the left and to advance all kinds of crazy theories um, and reporting that just isn't borne out by facts. Uh, so we see him, for instance, interacting with Andy No, uh, who's you know very shoddy reporting on left-wing protest movements and anti-fascism has helped create this whole kind of mythical idea that there are not just a group of you know, small, a handful of groups of anti-fascist activists who counter-protest against the right, but that they're kind of a shadow army taking over the country. It's totally bonkers stuff. But one of the people who seems to have fallen for that is Elon Musk, because we saw him taking direct advice from Andy No and you know reiterating that Andy No could report directly to him what he called Antifa accounts. And then shortly after that, we saw a bunch of left-wing activists banned from the platform. Uh, for no apparent reason. I mean, they were given, some of them were given no reason at all, and others were given reasons uh, that didn't even make any sense, like saying they'd evaded bans. You know, if you're banned on Twitter and you use another account to keep tweeting, they kick you off for that. Uh, but the people he yeah. banned just weren't doing that. So it doesn't even make any sense. Um, but it does seem like he's directly listening to Andy No and to other just totally far out people who have extreme views that. Normally would be ignored, um, but you know he's making these decisions based on kind of anecdotal evidence and I, what seems like his agreement with their politics. Yeah, I want to get back to some of those cast characters because uh, you know it's uh, fill a whole Sith planet with them. But um, um, but uh, on that particular story, the people, the left wingers who have been banned, and this is not theoretical, guys. They've already been banned. And so it has begun. I mean, it's literally a purge because they didn't 
violating any terms of service. But there was one story there that Rob, you got to remind me of that I thought was the most interesting. One where one of the parties involved got an email saying, okay, you're cleared. No, we checked up on these term of service violations, theoretical ones, and it turns out you didn't do it. And then later in the afternoon, you it seems like you see a tweet to Musk saying, no, get rid of him anyway, and he kind of does. But I've oversimplified, so what happened? Yeah, that I think you're talking about there's a, a kind of old veteran anarchist collective crime think um, and they produce you know flyers and posters and wheat paste that you see uh, you know on, on street corners on uh, during protests um, and Andy no has decided that they're an antifa organization that he he claimed had he said they claimed attacks as if they were a terrorist group it's completely fantasy um, but he reported them to to musk uh, and then they told us that they got uh, emails from Twitter saying, you know, in accordance with German law, like in Germany, before they ban you, if someone complains, they have to tell you about it. So some of these triggered these automatic emails saying, you know, according to German law, we have to let you know people, you know, complained about these tweets. Uh, but we looked into them and none of them violate our terms of service. So you're good to go. And then they were banned anyway. So as they told us, it seemed to be direct intervention. Uh, their system was saying you didn't do anything wrong, but at the same time they lost access to their account and now are completely suspended. Uh, so there does seem to be, you know, there's an existing process that Twitter had in place, trust and safety to deal with these kinds of things. They tried to have uniform standards, and now what we seem to be seeing is those just being overridden by a right-wing billionaire and whoever uh, is around him. There aren't that many people, but people who seem to share that ideology. And they're taking complaints directly from people who are willing to lie and just even aren't that bright. They're not that on top of what they're saying. They're easily misled by the news they report on. They get things wrong, they jump to conclusions, and now they have the person who owns Twitter acting on their behalf. Yeah, well, I'll take issue with that last part because I think that what you described is not the Andy knows and the right wing, you know, rabble rousers, if you will, trolls. Um, what you described is really Elon Musk. Uh, he seems to be the fool that doesn't understand anything. And uh, those guys, I think, uh, are not misunderstanding anything. They're just lying. Uh, that's what they do on a regular basis. And so it's not like, oh, I got it wrong again. No, no, they know what they're doing. The the, the idiot in the game seems to be Musk. So which is really interesting, we'll come back to that too. And by the way, guys, if you wanna get the exact details, you always can find the links to the articles when we're interviewing reporters in the description box. So check out Rob's piece there, make sure you read it, it's really interesting. So Rob, something that wasn't in your piece is other characters. It looks like he's listening to Cernovich and Posobiec, I can never pronounce that guy's name. And those guys are total, utter toxic loons. I mean, pizza gate, not like just lunatics. And so is he actually, does he not realize those folks are lunatics? I, apparently not, I mean, he's he's definitely responding to suggestions from those, those kind of quarters. And yeah, you're right, I mean, Jack Posobiec, he was one of the main people with Cernovich push, pushing the pizza gate thing right up until somebody walked into you know, ping pong pizza, common pizza with a gun. Uh, and then they said, "Oh no, we're just journalists reporting on. We're investigative journalists. No, they're not. They're they're operatives. They're political operatives. They have an agenda, and they use information. They you know they tell people things to to get to the the ends that they want." Yeah. So now back to Musk. Um, so he's banned left wingers. 
but it appears he's also platforming Nazis. Um, so <laughs> this is not a good combination. And guys, we're being literal here. So Rob, tell us about uh, some of the worst characters he's put back on the platform. Yeah, I mean, there's there's this uh, straight out Nazi, uh, uh, Brett Stevens, I think his name is, who, uh, not the Times columnist, but another one, uh, who is you know had just kicked off a decade ago for inciting attacks and for just horrible white supremacy, and now has an account again on Twitter and is able to push this agenda of white supremacy, saying they want a you know a white ethnic nationalist state, um, and that you know there seems to be no problem there for Musk and having these kinds of voices, but people who you know some of the people who've been banned are people. Who identified Capitol rioters? Who caught Proud Boys? Who uh, attacked the police and have been arrested since then? But now they are considered extremists, and people are actual Nazis uh, are on the platform. It also goes to you know there, are people kind of interacting with Musk and essentially probably tricking him into repeating code words for the Nazis. There was a whole thing about you know somebody posted something about the world in 88 million years and 88 being the eighth letter. HH for Heil Hitler is a code for right wingers, you know, Nazis, not right wingers. Um, yeah. And Musk just repeated it, having as if either he had no idea or he doesn't care. And then they all celebrate that. You know, there's a whole snowball effect here. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, him getting tricked on words is uh, a little disturbing because he's repeating Nazi propaganda, but. A lot less problematic than him getting tricked on content <laughs> and who to put on there and what substance for to offer to the followers of Twitter. Um, so, uh, so let's talk about that more. Um, so, did I read right that Daily Stormer and Andrew Anglin are are back on Twitter too? I don't I don't know if I'm getting outside of the scope of what you wrote about. Yeah, no, I, we didn't write directly about that, but that's right. That's right. They are back on there, and it's uh, it's incredibly disturbing and. You know, I mean, I guess to some extent, as one of the people I interviewed who was kicked off, Chad Loader, who's a security researcher and an anti-fascist activist in in LA, and a very sharp open source investigator, said, you know, basically, with social media platforms, the product that you're selling is content moderation. It's creating a space where communities can get together and exchange ideas. And you know, obviously, we know Black Lives Matter started as a hashtag. You know, racial justice protests, union protests, and organizers—a lot of social movements, outing and finding these people who rioted and invaded the Capitol. A lot of these things have happened on Twitter because it's a space where people aren't just constantly assaulted and you know, uh, tricked and criticized every time they say something. And Musk seems to be abandoning that just for you know making it into what he thinks of as a place for the kind of speech that he likes, but. Yeah, and so look, if you don't know, Daily Stormer is a, is a neo-Nazi website. It's there's nothing subtle about it. They flat out Nazis, um, and so uh, that which leads to the next question. Of I think fairly obviously, um, is there any rules left on Twitter anymore? And so I asked that in the context of Kanye when he was saying things that were pro-Hitler and and talking about the death of Jews was put back on Twitter. That was apparently okay. Uh, then he did a swastika and he was taken off of Twitter. Um, but yet, at the same time, approximately, the Daily Stormers put back on Twitter. So, is there any rule other than whatever pops into Elon Musk's frivolous head? It doesn't. It doesn't appear to be. I mean, officially, they say there are these rules, and Musk 
obviously interact, you know, acted directly to take down Kanye after Kanye posted that swastika uh, mashup with the star of David. Um, but he said it was because it violated their platform rule against incitement to violence. It's not clear. I mean, it's a you know, disgusting, idiotic thing to do. It's not clear that that was actually a direct incitement to violence. How do you? How are these rules being applied? It doesn't seem to be any consistency at all. And we don't, you know, we don't even know who's working on things. Apparently, a lot of it, in a way, uh, someone who's now at the trust and safety team told Reuters that a lot of it, the idea for Musk is to have things automated. So you just have, you know, sort of AI decisions made about what's hate speech and what's dangerous, and with yeah. predictable results. I think just with predictable results. There are reasons he's reinventing the wheel. There are reasons that content moderation over the last decade had to be worked on so you know diligently and at great cost to a lot of people. Uh, and Musk seems to be just throwing that all out. And of course, it also depends too, how do you program the AI? If you program the AI to allow Nazis, it'll allow Nazis, <laughs> right? And so it's, you're seeming to be getting at the same result either way. Okay, so uh, and finally, if Elon succeeds and makes this, you know, uh, Washes out. I say finally. No, I'm going to ask two more questions. Um, <laughs> so, if uh, if he washes away real left wing journalists and independent media, and turns this into a right wing ecosystem, well, didn't he just take Twitter, which he paid 44 billion dollars, and turn it into Getter, which is worth about 44 bucks? It certainly looks that way. I mean, it can't be. It doesn't seem. I'm not a business journalist, but it can't be a play for to win over advertisers because they're freaked out by it, as any. You know, right-thinking person would be. Uh, what, what's the ultimate? What's the ultimate aim? I, I, I don't know. It's, it, but it's definitely he's very open about the idea that it's to undermine what he sees as the creation of a woke agenda. He thinks that Twitter has been promoting ideas that are too left-wing, which, you know, authentically very diligent left-wing people would take issue with. But the company he saw as a bad influence on on the country, and he wants the country to go clearly in a more right wing direction. I mean, he's even used the platform to tell people to vote for Republicans in the midterms. He's allowed Trump back on, so I don't think it's very difficult to see what he wants. How it's going to work in a business perspective, I don't know. You know, maybe it's not that hard for him to go bankrupt and just kill the thing. Um, but yeah, that seems to be where we're going. Yeah, so there's two possibilities here. One is that he's got something figured out about the information marketplace, and he's going to use it to, well, the harsh word would be manipulate markets, whether it's crypto markets or, or real markets. And his real play is to make billions off of that, not off of Twitter itself. So that's a possibility. But even if that were so, he's still overpaid. And I am a businessman, I can tell you that with absolute certainty, okay? But, but not only that, does he, all right, let me ask it this way. If he's leaning right wing in terms of the content that he allows, Nazi, etc. I mean, that's not just leaning, obviously he's going fully in that direction. And he starts to like ban left wing people as he has here. My God, if he crossed over to mainstream media folks, he's toast that Twitter's gone, right? But I mean, my sense is that mainstream media doesn't really care about independent media. So then like these actual journalists being banned, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the New York Times is like, whatevs, they're not in our club at all. So don't care, we're still gonna be on Twitter and it doesn't even bother us. But you ban a couple of New York Times and CNN folks, then you really have nothing but true social on your hands. Am I missing anything? Wouldn't it be identical to true social at that point? 
I think it would, except that uh, Trump is on Truth Social and he's not apparently on Twitter at the moment. But yes, absolutely, you're right. You're right, Cenk. And he doesn't, but he he sees this. It's all this weird, fifteen-year-old, strange ideology about you know freedom of ideas and democratizing you know the journalism. But what you know, what activists? I said, you know, our article is illustrated with a picture from the 2011 Egypt protests that were very, you know, people use Twitter to organize an actual revolution online. And if people like that see this is a platform for right-wing Nazis, they're not going to use it. They're just not going to use it. People are going to find other ways to organize and to communicate. He says, which if he starts banning more and more left-wingers, we won't be allowed to use it. And then, by the way, the right wing will get bored because who are they going to attack then? So right. this is this is as bad a business model as I've seen. Uh, so let's see where this train slash train wreck, uh, you know, it comes into station, if you will. Um, all right, uh, Rob Mackey at the Intercept, uh, following us closely. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you.